Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time in his word. Father, we are so thankful for all that you have revealed to us in your word that we live in a time when we have a completed canon of scripture. We have a uh, completed translation, many different translations that are uh, very accurate where we can uh, enjoy reading, studying your word and be refreshed and edified by the study of your word. Father, it is through your word that you teach us, that you inform us, and God the Holy Spirit uses that to transform our thinking and transform our lives, that no matter what our circumstances may be, we may learn to have the true joy and happiness and stability in life that come only because we are living in the light of your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that the principles here will be uh, beneficial to us in our own study, and that God the Holy Spirit would use this to further our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture clearly teaches that God's love comes to the believer in two ways. It comes to the believer in the form of blessing, but also in the form of discipline. The picture that we have of this for for a picture that we have of this for the church age believer comes out of the Old Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, any time you study, in fact, this is true about any passage in Scripture, any time you study any passage in Scripture, you need to think of it in terms of one of two broad ways of application. One is salvation or justification. Is this passage or are the principles in the passage that I am reading teaching me basic principles about how to have eternal life, how to be justified, how to experience the perfect forgiveness that God has for every single uh, unbeliever. Aside from those passages, everything else in the Scripture has to do with our spiritual life. It has something to do with our 
advance our sanctification. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going through that index file in your mind and saying, well, what about these genealogy passages, and what about uh, this passage over here, that passage there? Well, if you understand those passages, how they fit within certain contexts, then they do have something to do with sanctification. And so that is true for the section we're in right now. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter First uh, Kings chapter 21. Now, for the most of the study that we've been engaged in for the last several weeks and for the last several months as we begin uh, the study of mostly the northern kingdom kings, uh, starting back in uh, chapter 12 of First Kings with the split in the uh, kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, northern kingdom of Israel, which was initially ruled by Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was initially ruled by Solomon's son Rehoboam. We've spent most of that time dealing with the northern kingdom, although there have been, there were a few things in chapter 14 and, and 15 that dealt with uh, the southern kingdom kings. The focus mostly in First Kings and Second Kings is on what happens in the, in the northern kingdom. And what happens, if we step back a minute to just get that broad picture, and it's important to do that in order to see the uh, focal point of what is being taught in 1 Kings uh, 20, 21, and then next week in 22, uh, what we see in that overview is the deterioration of the northern kingdom. As their spiritual life degrades because of negative volition, they move from one stage of idolatry to an even worse stage of idolatry. And as they go through these successive stages of idolatry and rebellion against God, then there are successive stages of divine discipline. And this pattern is also true in our life, and so we can learn from this in terms of of warning. Now, I'll remind you that the way in which we are to look at, at the Old Testament in terms of Israel and learning lessons from the nation Israel, applying them to our life individually, is to look at Israel as a people of God in the Old Testament. They are the people of God in the Old Testament, and they are secured in that relationship with God by means of the Abrahamic covenant. So they are pictured as a people, as a nation, as having a special relationship with God. That doesn't mean that just by birth they're, uh, they're justified or saved, but that their position as a nature is secured and can never be lost because of God's unconditional promise in the Abrahamic covenant. The same thing is true for every church-age believer. Our position in Christ is guaranteed by the same faithfulness, the same faithful promise of God that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And we can, we did nothing to earn that. We did nothing to deserve it. And so we can do nothing to lose that. That is our secure position in the Lord Jesus Christ. But once we are saved, once we are justified, once we have eternal life, then the next question is, what are we going to do with that? What, what are we going to do with our new spiritual life? Are we just going to continue to live life the same way we did before we were saved? Because after all, uh, we're saved. I can't lose my salvation, so I can do whatever I want to. Or do, are we going to recognize that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
It is now our responsibility to grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to glorify him in our life and in order to experience all of the many blessings that are ours potentially in Christ. When we were saved, God gave us a blessing package. It's true for every single believer, but we only receive those blessings when we reach the maturity in order to be able to uh, to handle those blessings. So that post-salvation life is what we refer to as the as the spiritual life. Now, when we compare the spiritual life of the church-age believer with the spiritual life of the nation Israel, that's where the, uh, that's where the spiritual lessons come into play. The Old Testament nation of Israel was secured in their position in Christ because of the, I mean, secured in, their, in the plan of God because of the Abrahamic covenant. The believer in the church-age is secure in our, in our position in Christ because of what Christ did on the cross and our faith in him and the promise of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant was given to Israel not as a means of salvation, but the Mosaic Covenant was given as the plan of God for a saved people and that God would bless them if they were obedient and God would discipline them and judge them if they were disobedient. And so the same principle is true for the church-age believer. Our security in God's plan is already there because of our faith in Christ and our adoption into God's family. But our experience of God's blessings is dependent upon our obedience. So in both the Old and New Testament, we have the same emphasis. And it's just the, the Christian life the, and the church age and spiritual life of the Old Testament is just basically pretty simple. You can boil it all down to the two words emphasized in that hymn, trust and obey. But you have to know what to obey. You have to be able to think uh, more precisely about all of the issues in life and how the Word of God affects all those issues in life. We can't go running around uh, in our life, thinking that somehow we can solve the problems that we face in the energy of our own flesh, in the energy of our own ability, when God has provided both uh, the way to handle all those problems and the means to implementing uh, that way. And so we have to study the Word and to learn it. And that includes the whole counsel of God. That includes everything in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. When we come to the church age, we don't just cut out uh, part of the Bible, cut out the Old Testament, because, uh, well, that had to do with Israel. There are many, numerous uh, principles there that apply to us. Now, what we see in the northern kingdom of Israel is a pattern that is true for every believer that turns his back on God and implements just basic human viewpoint techniques for trying to face life and handle problems. Uh, in Israel, prior to the split, we had two kings that walked with God, at least for the most part of their life, David and Solomon up to a point. Under their minister, under their, under their reigns, when they trusted God and were obedient to God, the nation experienced unprecedented blessing. And under Solomon, God gave them just an extraordinary amount 
of, of blessing. And the nation expanded, and they were one of the wealthiest nations in the world and one of the greatest empires of the world. But then when Solomon began to uh, trust in himself, put his trust in the flesh rather than God, as he turned his back on God, as he began to assimilate the thinking of the world systems around him, as he began to uh, synthesize uh, various religious viewpoints, as he began to syncretize his religion and, and uh, no longer walk exclusively with God, then the nation came under increasing divine discipline so that at the end of his reign, Solomon is not characterized as a good king but as an evil king because he led the people astray, and this was seen especially in the way in which he uh, allowed for the building of various uh, idols and places of worship in the high places. After his death, because of his disobedience to God, the kingdom was taken, uh, was split, taken away. The ten tribes were taken away from the house of David, and the northern kingdom was established. And we traced through our study of chapters 12 and 13, 14, uh, 15 and 16, we traced the uh, degradation, deterioration that occurred there. And this is what happens in our lives in carnality and sin. We just don't start off as bad as we can be. We start off in small steps into letting the sin nature control our lives. And then as we uh, seem to th- think that, well, I seem to be getting away with this, God isn't doing anything. Uh, that's because God, in his grace, as we'll see, often gives us many opportunities to turn back to him and to recover. And so we go through these processes of, of increasing uh, deterioration and uh, disobedience in our life. We saw that with Israel, starting off with Jeroboam and the construction of the uh, idol in Bethel and in Dan, The people were to come to worship, and Jeroboam dedicated those idols and said, this is the God who brought you up out of the uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And so he is assigning to the idol the identity of God. And so he is making an uh, this this idol of God. And so there is this this way of just sort of syncretizing or mixing the elements of truth with elements of of untruth and elements of religious of religious lies. And so as he led the people into idolatry, his dynasty, his house came under divine discipline. His son Nadab reigned for less than a year, and then Baasha assassinated him and set himself up as, as king. And we saw all of the evil that Baasha uh, brought upon uh, the northern kingdom. Uh, he slaughtered the entire house of Jeroboam, so Jeroboam was left with uh, no family, no descendants, no dynasty. Uh, the same thing happens with Baasha. After he died, his son is Elah was uh, then assassinated along with all of his house, so they're completely wiped out. By and, and that was instigated by a man named Zimri. Zimri didn't last long at all. In fact, uh, right after he led his revolt uh, against Elah. 
The rest of the people learned about his assassination of Eli, so they appointed Omri to be the king. And Zimri was uh, surrounded, and so he went into the uh, uh, citadel, the fortress itself, and set it on fire and burned it down around himself, uh, killing himself. And then Omri set himself up as king, and it was his dynasty that became the most powerful dynasty in the northern kingdom. And his son is Ahab. Ahab is uh, the focal point of these chapters and episodes in Elijah's life because Ahab Ahab was married to Jezebel, and they brought in even more uh, idolatry, an even worse form of religion into the nation. So there's this continued degradation that occurs, and people say, "Well, well, why isn't God doing anything? Well, God is doing something. He's bringing increasing calamity upon the nation. There's the three and a half years of drought. There is economic collapse. There is hunger in the land. People don't have food. And all of these economic catastrophes that were going on in Israel, an agricultural country that had had no rain for three and a half years, is there because God is trying to get their attention. And the same principles happen even in the church age, even though the United States or Western Europe, no other country is a covenant nation with God. God still is the one who brings uh, into the lives of people and into the lives of nation disciplinary uh, consequences because of their disobedience to uh, to him, and so we see this tremendous instability that has developed in the northern kingdom now, but God is still dealing with them in grace in much grace, and so in chapter uh, twenty last time, we saw that God, in grace, gave uh, Ahab victory over the Syrians. We studied the conflict he had with ben hadad who 's the king of Syria, and Ben hadad invades. Uh, the southern kingdom a couple of times, I mean the northern kingdom a couple of times, in order to try to defeat them. He already controls part of the northern uh, uh, tribal area north of the uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he wants to uh, now completely con- take over and capture the northern kingdom, take it away from from Ahab, but he fails to do that, not because Ahab is so great and God is blessing Ahab by giving him victory. It has to do with God's purpose for the nation that has nothing to do with Ahab. So he's going to put Ahab under judgment, but God still is going to treat the nation in grace to fulfill their plan. And that happens many times in history. The plan of God is complex. We can't just look at a nation and say, well, because God's blessing them, they must must be doing things right. No, sometimes God blesses or seems to be blessing a nation because he has a future purpose uh, for that nation, and God will indeed judge that nation uh, further on, uh, later on. <coughs> but by the end of chapter 20, we saw that Ahab is condemned because when he finally does capture Ben-Hadad, he doesn't kill him as he should have, but he bargains with him and releases him to go back to uh, to go back to Damascus. And so God sent a prophet, one of the sons of the prophets, in verse 35, uh, to uh, Ahab and announces his judgment. And this is articulated in the last two verses. Uh, verse 42 says that he's, the prophet said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and 
came to Samaria. So this introduces us to Ahab's mental attitude. He's not happy. He is, God has just brought this judgment upon him, and he knows that his days are numbered. God is going to discipline him and take his life, and he's going to lose uh, lose his life early, and that God is also going to discipline uh, the nation. And so he is down. He is angry. He is depressed. And it just gets worse. See, this often happens in life when you feel uh, down and depressed and discouraged. You need to take time to take a long, hard look at what's going on in your life spiritually and where your focus is. Uh, and if you continue in that state without utilizing the promises of God and what God has supplied you, then it's just going to get even worse. And that's what happens with Ahab rather than utilizing that announcement of judgment as a way of bringing him back under the authority of God. He continues to be rebellious toward God, but God continues to be gracious toward him. And so that brings us to the first part of chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So this must have been a really prime piece of real estate because the king would pick the best spot. Whoever was going to establish the palace would pick the best piece of real estate uh, in the area. Remember, these cities are not going to be very large, maybe cover uh, 10, 12 acres or so at most. And so Ahab would have the high ground, and so Naboth was right, took the land right next to it, and it is part of his inheritance. Inheritance in, in the Old Testament law is possession of property. When the Israelites first went into the land and took the land from the Canaanites, each tribe was given a particular allotment of land. And this allotment of land was laid out, and then it was further subdivided into families, the land for families and clans, And this was to be a permanent possession for all generations. And this property was not to go outside of the family. Uh, If they were to die with only daughters, then if the daughter married uh, outside of the clan, then the husband could come into the clan, but that would to raise up children for the clan, uh, the family. But that land would stay within that uh, family's possession, and you couldn't sell it off, and so that no Jew would ever become homeless. It was God's provision for the nation for all future generations, recognizing that property and private ownership of property is at the core of all national uh, economy and prosperity. When people don't have land and can't, don't have the right of ownership of land, then there's no personal right to ownership of the means of production. And what happens when you have other systems of economics come in, such as socialism or, or, or communism, Marxism, that take away the private ownership of land or where the means of production comes under the 
the control of a government, even though uh, people are perhaps allowed to own the land. They cannot ultimately control all of the uh, production because the government is interfering. This destroys the ability of a people to secure their own future and to uh, take care of their uh, and, and make decisions with regard to their own uh, future destiny. It wipes out uh, the first divine institution, which, of course, is individual uh, responsibility, and this it, it ultimately always leads to a collapse. No nation has ever reached a level of prosperity and success without recognizing the right of property ownership and the right of ownership of the means of production. And so there, you, you can't look around and point to any a nation has built themselves on as successful on either socialism or communism. There's no prosperity there from either one of those systems. So Ahab looks at this uh, land that Navot has, and he says to and he's jealous. He wants it for himself. This is a prime piece of real estate. Uh, Nabot has developed it well. It's, it looks, it's beautiful, and all of that is a result of uh, Nabot's hard work. So Ahab goes to him and says, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. Now, this is a principle known as eminent domain. How current is this? And it's recognized in our nation that if there is land or real estate that someone owns and it is deemed um, necessary for the good of the whole, that that, um, that, that land be uh, used for some significant uh purpose, such as the building, expansion of highways, building of highways, or other uh, public good, that the uh, state has the right to come in and take that land uh, as, as theirs, but to pay the going market price for that land. Now, recently, we've had some real challenges to that in this nation. When I was up in Connecticut, there was a uh, nice piece of, of a nice area of real estate right on the, the uh, entrance of the harbor there on the, well, they call it the Thames River. That takes a while to get used to the, it's not the Thames, it's the Thames. That's how they pronounce it up there. And just south of New London. And so what they were doing is that they were going in and they wanted to use the principle of eminent domain to take over this land that was an older, run-down part of town, but it was great real estate, and not use it for the public good, but to sell it to a corporation so that that corporation could then improve that land. That's the, that is almost the idea of where this event goes in first, uh, uh, first Kings 21. Uh, it is when government becomes uh, too powerful and misuses their power. And so that went through the whole court system and was, was um, I believe, deemed to be legitimate, set up a tremendous precedent that is very bad, where under eminent domain you have to prove it is something for the public good and just taking a piece of real estate because it's run down slums uh, and, then tr- and then saying that, well, it's going to be better for a corporation to have it and build there and expand their, 
their um, facilities onto that is going to be better use of the land really opens the door to a lot of uh, tyranny and a power grab for the, for the government. They can use that for to justify almost anything. And as a result of that decision, many states began to change their their eminent domain laws in order to protect private property. It had a positive effect on that. But this is uh, what it's, what's going on here, and Ahab does offer him fair market value, but there's a little problem, and that little problem is called the Constitution. And just then, as now, a lot of people say, well, let's, let's not really worry about the Constitution. Let's just do what seems right for, best for the government at the time. And so, but Naboth is one of these constitutionalists, one of these strict constructionists who wants to live his life on the basis of what the Constitution said, which in that case was the Mosaic Law. And according to the Mosaic Law, no family could sell their inheritance. It was to stay in the, in the family. And in, if, if in fact they were to sell their inheritance, uh, their property, on the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year, every 50th year, that land ownership would revert back to the family. So you could never permanently get rid of uh, the land. This was in order to protect the families and protect the clan so that they, no Jew would ever be homeless and they would always have possession uh, of their inheritance. So in verse 3 we read, Nevot said to Ahab, uh, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab goes to his house, and look at this. He's sullen. He's displeased. He's even worse than he was when he heard that God was going to judge him. And he just goes off and throws his own little uh, pity party. He is totally self-absorbed. He acts like a spoiled brat. He can't get what he wants because ultimately God won't let him have it. And so he goes off and he starts whining and crying. He lays down in his bed. He turns away his face. He wouldn't eat food. He's just acting like a three-year-old. And uh, Jezebel came in to him and wanted to know why he was so depressed. That's verse 5 and verse 6. He explains to her he tried to buy this uh, vineyard next door from Nevot, and, and uh, he wouldn't give it to her, to him, wouldn't sell it to him. And so Jezebel has her own plan. Verse 7 is the key. She, Jezebel's wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So now she's going to come up with a very uh, very insidious plan uh, going outside of the law. She, again, is going to ignore the Constitution, which is the Mosaic Law, and she is going to get involved in some uh, <clears throat> some real dirty deeds here in order to set up uh, set up Nevot. And so she arranges for there to be this huge banquet. And she's going to put a couple of uh, thugs next to um, next to Nevot at the dinner, who are then going to suddenly feign this this anger against him and stand up and accuse him of blaspheming God and and slandering the king so that they're going to accuse him following the law. See, this you always have to watch people who use the law to destroy the law. And you have to be very perceptive because there's so many people, and this happens in business, and this happens in marriage failures, and this happens in government. This isn't just something new to, to politics where people use 
the law in order to pervert the law. And so she's going to follow all of the appearance of the law with having two witnesses to accuse uh, Navot of blasphemy against God. And so th- she's going to trump up what appears to have a, a legitimate justification for executing him, and they're going to haul him out outside the walls of the city, and they're going to execute him. And there's no recourse for him living under this kind of tyranny. There's no court of appeal. There's no way that he can defend himself. He is trapped, and so he is hauled out. And <clears throat> these these uh, uh, thugs, these scoundrels, the text says, uh, pr- provide false witness against him, which is a violation of the, uh, I believe that's the eighth or ninth commandment, and accuse him of blasphemy. So they take him out and they stone him and he is killed. So verse 16, it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that he got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Well, it seems like he's gotten, he's gotten just exactly what he, what he wanted. But you see, God is the one who reigns in the affairs of men. And this, now this is a violation of God's law. It also fulfills some, some prophecy. I just want to show you a couple of scriptures. Back in 1 Samuel 8, one of the great passages dealing with government in the scriptures is, comes out of the mouth of, of uh, Samuel when he warns the people about the things that will happen if they get a king. And all of these things come true over time. And verse uh, 11, Samuel says, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons, appoint them for his chariots. To his horsemen, some will run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over thousands and over fifties. He'll set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. What's he talking about? He says, you're going to set up a king, and he's going to set up his own business, government business. It's going to compete with everybody else, and then he's going to draft the labor to do all of the work. And this is going to take your sons and your daughters away from the fields, so that's going to limit your production. So once again, it's the problem of big government uh, versus small government, and this is the danger of big government, is it destroys the ability of the private sector to function to their fullest extent. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. See, that's exactly what's happening here. The best of the vineyard was uh, Nevo's vineyard. And so Jezebel and uh Jezebel has figured out a way to steal this vineyard and to make it the uh, make it the king's, and so that's what she has done. Now, this is there's also a warning related to this in Ezekiel forty six eighteen. Uh, Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance uh, by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. So this is the context of this is talking about the future period during the uh, millennium, and so again, there's private ownership of property even in the millennium. The the perfect period of uh, utopic period in the scripture is a time that is governed by principles of private ownership of property and private ownership of the means of production, even in 
the millennial kingdom. You're not, you don't have a socialistic or communistic state, which runs counter to how some people have perverted uh, what the Bible uh, what the Bible teaches on these subjects. It's always amazing how people don't read all the text. So, with uh, Naboth out of the way, the vineyard comes into uh, possession with uh, uh, of Jezebel and Ahab, and he is going to come under divine discipline. This is something we always have to remember, is that believers don't get away with it. When And I'm not saying that Ahab is a believer, but in his position in the nation, he's not going to get away with it. God is going to to bring judgment. It is inevitable. This is seen in uh, Hosea. Hosea chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, lay out this principle. Eventually, judgment, harsh, harsh judgment, will come to Samaria, and they will be destroyed. In Hosea 8, Five, you have this announcement, your calf is rejected. That's that idolatrous calf that Jeroboam had set up. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My uh, anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Their ultimate sin was idolatry. They rejected God generation after generation after generation. And ultimately, verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. A whirlwind is like a tornado, and God's judgment will come like a tornado that will wipe out the northern kingdom. This doesn't happen for another a uh, hundred years or so in 722 BC, the northern kingdom will be destroyed by the Assyrians. But God holds off because God is gracious. Second Peter 3.9 states the principle, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should, all should come to repentance. God is going to take time again and again and again. He is going to pursue the unbeliever or pursue the disobedient believer with grace again and again and again, giving them opportunities to change. And so even though God has announced uh, Ahab's death once already, he is still pursuing him, and so he now is going to send uh, to, to Ahab, Ahab's favorite person, Elijah. <laughs> Just another expression of God's grace. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Nevoth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Now here's the judgment. In the same place where the dogs licked the blood of Nevoth, dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And so Ahab says to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Ahab's perspective hasn't changed much. He just looks at at Elijah's a killjoy, taking it out personally on him. And Elijah says, I found you because you have sold yourself 
to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it was Jezebel who had the plan, Jezebel who brought it to completion. Ahab wasn't a primary in it at all, but he's the one, when he finds out about it, he goes right along with it after the fact. He is an accomplice uh, after the fact, and so he is just as guilty as if he had uh, been involved from the very beginning. He did nothing to punish Jezebel. He had, you know, he just had no guts in the home. Jezebel ran everything, and and Ahab was just a panty waste. So Ahab said to Elijah, um, or uh, Elijah continues rather, verse twenty-one: Behold. This is what the Lord says, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity. That's his, his dynasty. Same thing that happened to uh, Jeroboam's family. Same thing that happened to Baasha's family. Now it's going to happen to, to your family. You're going to be the end of the line. There's not going to be a continuation of your dynasty either because of your disobedience to God. I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity. And I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. You're not going to be in authority over anyone. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. They're going to eat up her by nothing's going to be left of Jezebel. They're not going to be able to bury her. They're not going to be able to find her. The dogs are going to lick her up and she is going to become dung which fertilizes the fields. That's a pretty harsh judgment. That's exact I thought that was a very interesting way God dealt with that. There's nothing left to honor of either one of them. And this is one of the most evil couples in the history of the world. Verse 25, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved uh, very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, all of that is his condemnation. This is his indictment. He is guilty of the worst sins. He is guilty of the worst sins in the nation, in the northern kingdom. He has led them into the worst forms of, of idolatry, including uh, child sacrifice. And God is bringing this judgment upon him. But let's look at how he responds. Now, he didn't have a, a proper response to the last message at the end of chapter 20, but he does here. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his body, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. This is a sign of repentance, of change, of the fact that he recognizes God has uh, the right to judge him in this way, and he expressing is expressing his sorrow, not just sorrow at getting caught, but a true internal change of heart towards God. He recognizes the, the horror of his own sin. Now, I'm not saying that this is when he's saved. I'm not saying that Ahab is saved. The text doesn't address the issue of his, uh, of his salvation at all. 
But as a king of Israel, he is under the authority of God to obey God, and he has been disobedient, and now he is admitting that, and he is in genuine repentance. And the Lord who looks on the heart knows what's truly going on with Ahab and recognizes it as legitimate. And he says in verse 29, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity upon his house. So even in judgment, because of the way in which Ahab humbled himself in obedience to God, changed his mind, God relents on some of the harshness of the judgment and says, okay, it's not going to happen in Ahab's life, but it will happen in his son's life. God is, the the message here, the doctrine here is that God is in control of history, that no matter what happens, no matter how evil or wicked government powers may be, no matter how evil or wicked you may be, God's grace extends to you. And when God disciplines us, and he will because of our disobedience, it always comes with his grace. This is what is seen in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And uh, where the writer of Hebrews says to these uh, disobedient uh, Jewish believers, uh, former priests who are wanting to give up their Christianity, Uh, He writes, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise or treat lightly uh, the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. See, God's love involves not only blessing, but it involves discipline. And that discipline from the Lord is a sign that we are not illegitimate children, but a sign that we are legitimate and that God wants to get us back into obedience where he can bless us. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And the point in this and the lesson is that just as in the northern kingdom, we can become disobedient children. We don't lose our salvation. That is not at stake. But we can lose the privilege and the opportunity of blessing from God. And God will bring, though he treats us in grace after grace after grace in trying to woo us back into obedience, at some point he will lower the boom in terms of discipline. Some of that discipline can be quite harsh. Some of it can be lessened, and some of it won't be lessened very much. And if we continue in carnality, then we can end up in the sin unto death, which is what eventually happens with Elijah. And in the next chapter, we see how that is brought uh, brought to bear. But the lesson for us in this is to not, as the writer of Hebrews says, is to not treat lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't get in that position where through ongoing disobedience, ongoing carnality, then you get in the position of divine discipline. God has been gracious to all of us and provided for all of us, 
And one of the greatest uh, grace blessings we have is to be able to confess our sins and have forgiveness. But we can't abuse it. We can't misuse it as an, simply an excuse for uh, for carnality. And all of this is based on the fact that God in his grace provided perfect salvation for us through what Jesus Christ did on the cross as he paid the penalty for our sins with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word that is such a sure and certain guide for us and to us. It is your word that teaches us all about who you are, that you are a righteous God, you are a just God, and that righteousness and justice does not work apart from your love. But together, your righteousness, justice, and your love, along with your grace, provide for us everything that we need in life, everything that is required of us, for us. Father, you have given us a perfect salvation, and that salvation is not dependent upon anything that we say or do. That salvation is dependent upon what you did for us at the cross and what Jesus Christ did in dying as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and by believing in him, trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. But after that, our choice is to grow and mature and to press on. Father, there are some here who still need to make a decision as to whether or not they're serious about their Christian life. They are saved. They are your children. They are born again, but they have not taken that seriously, and they need to make a decision to live in light of their regeneration, to live in light of their position in Christ, to live in light of all the spiritual blessings that they have, and not to just ignore them as the kings in the northern kingdom did and just go on living their life in whatever manner they would. Father, we pray that you would challenge them with the truth of your word this morning and the need to be right with you and the need to press on in their spiritual growth. And, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.